Welcome to a special live episode of What Works, the show that brings you candid conversations about how small business owners really make it work. I'm your host, Tara McMullen, and today I'm joined by the founder of The Origin Collective and the author of Do Less, Kate Northrup. Hey, Kate. Thanks for having me. I'll tell you more about Kate in just a minute, but first I want to give a bit of context to this conversation. Now, all this month, we've been exploring running our businesses by the numbers. We've heard from a bunch of small business owners about how tracking metrics and financials have led to better decision-making and results. But the one number we haven't tackled yet is time. Now, they say that we have the same 24 hours as Beyonce to make things happen, but what they don't account for is all the help she has or the way she structures her time to focus on what's vitally important to her. And the result? Well, we end up feeling shamed into adding more and more and more to our to-do lists. Now, today's guest, Kate Northrup, has a different approach. Simply put, Kate is an advocate for doing less. I've known Kate for many years now, and I've loved watching both her business and her personal life bloom in new ways. It would be easy for her to be an overwhelmed, overworked entrepreneur, wife, and mother, but Kate has made it her business to figure out how to do less and achieve her goals in life and business. As an entrepreneur, best-selling author, and mother, Kate Northrup has built a multimedia digital empire that reaches hundreds of thousands globally. She's committed to supporting ambitious women to light up the world without burning themselves out in the process. Kate teaches data-driven and soul-driven time and energy management practices that result in saving time, making more money, and experiencing less stress. Kate's work has been featured by The Today Show, Yahoo Finance, Women's Health, Glamour, The Institute of Integrative Nutrition, Wanderlust, The Huffington Post, and more. Kate Northrup, Welcome to What Works. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. As I said, I've been listening to your podcast. I really love it. It's so helpful. So I'm just, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I am thrilled to have you and I am thrilled for this conversation because just the other day on Instagram, uh, someone messaged me and said, Tara, we had another episode on doing less. And she said, Tara, I am so thankful for this. Everyone talks about doing more or, you know, you just even get the impression that you have to do more to succeed more. Um, And so I think people are really, really hungry uh, for this conversation around doing less, doing what's most important, doing the things that really matter. And I know that this is absolutely your wheelhouse, but it's also something that you've lived. I know that there have been times when you have been that overworked, overwhelmed kind of person. And so I'd love to start there, actually, because this is not something that you were like born into. This is something that you have experimented with and learned. So can you tell me about a time that you found yourself doing more in an effort to achieve bigger results in your life and business? Yes. Uh, When my first book came out, Money, A Love Story, I had never launched a book before. I was scared about the whole thing. I didn't know what it would mean. Um, I have multiple personal layers of stuff I continue to work through from having been raised by an author and like what that means. So that's, I mean, that's not the question you were asking, but we, we have the logistics of business and then we have the emotions of business Mm -hmm. and they do a dance together. And so for me, 
So much of my own relationship with doing more also has to do with my relationship with my upbringing and what success means. And we all have our own personal definitions of that. And they're complicated for many reasons. And for me, you know, it was being raised in this particular household, in in this particular industry. And so when I was launching my first book, I was like, okay, I'll do podcasts weren't really a thing. It was 2013 as, as much. And so podcasting was not a thing, but what I did do is I, I created this interview series where I interviewed 52 people about their money love stories and had them share it. And I shared it and I was like, oh, this will be no big deal. And I just want to say, if you find yourself saying it's not going to take that much work and it'll get really big results. Like that to me is such a red flag when I'm, Uh when I say to my husband, oh, it's going to be easy. It's no big deal. We both now know, like slow our roll because I will say like, as much as I'm an advocate of doing less, things tend to take twice as much time as we think they will twice as much energy. And there is no such thing as a free lunch. There really is no such thing as something that's just like fast and easy and whatever. Like things take time, they take energy, they take devotion. And you know, that is why running a small business is not for the faint of heart. So for that initial book launch, I did these interviews. I was on the road a ton. I, um, wrote like a bajillion, um, guest posts. I like talked to everybody I knew about helping me promote the book. And I just essentially did too much. And by the end of the book launch, not even by the end of the book launch, by like the end of the first week of the book launch, I was, I was burned out. I was exhausted. I didn't feel like talking about my book anymore. I didn't feel like talking about money anymore. And I basically, which is like not a great thing when you've just written a book about money. And I really contracted big time because I had expanded, I think, far past the the point that I had needed to, to get the same result. And while I can't go back and say, and actually know what results I could have gotten from doing less, I know for sure that 20% of our efforts give us 80% of our results. Mm -hmm. And so I think I could have been much more strategic and I've just launched another book. And so I was far more strategic and looking at the numbers and what, you know, what could get us the best results. So Yeah, I would actually love for you to kind of compare and contrast the Money Love Story uh, book launch with the Do Less book launch. So the Money Love Story book launch was like throwing spaghetti at the wall. It was just like, Mm -hmm. let me do everything because I have no idea what I'm doing and I don't have a plan. Whereas the Do Less launch... I am now a mother. I have a I have a 13 month old and a three and a half year old. Um, I have a husband who is recovering from a very intense illness. He's doing great, but in October he really dropped out of life for about two months, and um, so that really slowed us down in terms of the book launch. And I think it was a beautiful gift because I just couldn't overdo it <laughs> because because when one person goes down. I, I there was no possibility of me going down too because we don't have like local family who could say, like there's nobody else who's going to take care of my kids other than me and my husband. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a very real thing. And then running our company, you know, and so in the ramp up to the book launch of Do Less, I didn't have all the freedom of before when I was a single woman, no kids. We weren't even married at that time. I literally could have spent every 24, you know, all 24 hours working. I didn't, but I did 
we, we both, and it was Mike and I full time, both working on that. And so the great news is it's just the same thing. Uh, you know, people talk about if you want to lose weight, um, and, and control your portion size, just have eat off smaller plates. Mm. And this, the very much the same thing goes with our time. It is why we say, if you want something done, ask a busy person to do it. Because when you make the amount of time you have smaller, you automatically use your time better. Automatically. And so the good news about that is if we can become more mindful about our schedules and crowd out all the things that don't belong there by adding in the things that do belong there, you end up essentially eating off a smaller plate time-wise and you metaphorically lose weight you know, in your time, like energetically, if that made sense. Absolutely makes sense. I freaking love that metaphor. <laughs> it's so perfect. And it's exactly my experience too. I can remember when I went from doing my business part-time, you know, 10 years ago to doing it full-time and thinking, oh, I'm going to get so much more stuff done because now I literally have like four times as much time during the day. And I didn't, I didn't get any more stuff done. I got so much more done when all I had was that one or two hours in the evening where I could sit down and write, or I could, you know, create something new. So I really resonate with that. And I'm sure people listening do as well. I want to get into how you actually crowd your schedule with the things that you want to have in in it. Uh, But first, I want to talk about sort of the stories that we tell ourselves about being busy, about having a lot to do, um, about how productive we are. Because you wrote in the introduction uh, to do less that you thought productivity was what actually makes us valuable. You wrote, look what I've done and I'll show you how much I'm worth. And like, boy, does that resonate with me. Um, I've recently just started unpacking how much I have believed that for myself and how much that's impacted all the different things I've done over the years. So I would love to know just from a personal standpoint, how did you start to rewrite that story and start looking at your personal value, your personal worth as separate from your productivity? Mm. It's like such a good question. This continues to be a journey for me, for sure. I mean, having been raised in a hyper overachieving family in a in a overachieving culture. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that really helped, honestly, was getting pregnant, which is not exactly like something I recommend to everybody. But when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I just was so tired. I literally couldn't do anything for like nine months. And so I used to work 40, 50 hours a week, sometimes 60. And it I cut it way down to like 10 to 20 hours a week. But the thing is, my husband and I run our own company. We were about to have a child. We have real expenses. We were going to have, you know, we had medical bills, all of those things. So we needed to get the same results in mm-hmm. a lot less time. But what was so fascinating, and I can, you know, I can talk about that specifically later, but what was so fascinating is there I was doing the least amount I'd ever done, certainly in my adult life, and really probably since I was like seven when I started my first business, you know, and 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 yet I was doing the most productive thing I had ever done, which is always making a human being without even yeah. thinking about it and without having to put on my to-do list like make a liver today. I mean, I couldn't have possibly made a human by thinking about it. And I think we're so, we live in such a neck up culture that we think that our brain, we are our minds. 
And yet our minds are just this small part of us. You know, I don't know what the percentage is, but if you think about what your brain is compared to your entire body, it's a very small percentage of who we are. And then there's the whole soul conversation. And I know you are not a woo show, but (laughs) (laughs) we could go there another time. So, so basically it was the experience for me. It was the experience of growing a human being now two times that helped me to realize my productivity is not always visible. And the way that I cre- I add value to the world is has a lot more to do with who I am than what I do. And we've all experienced that when you have a conversation with somebody that is so validating, you feel so seen, you know, just being in that person's presence gives you the best ideas. And they haven't really done anything, but it's who they are. And we can all think of a few people in our lives that it's who they are that makes them valuable to us. And, um, and, but unfortunately, the more we're, the more we do, the more obsessed we are with doing always and being in constant motion. And by the way, I'm still really ambitious and I still do plenty of things, but like when we are living in this loop of obsession with doing, we actually really, uh, turn down the volume on our ability to be as powerful and present as we can be, which is where like all the best stuff comes from. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like this was a process of becoming more and more aware of the fact that there you were doing stuff that you weren't aware of, you were producing stuff, you were contributing value in ways that you weren't aware. Um, and so that, that kind of led you into a more intentional process of doing less and finding ways to achieve what you want to achieve and, and you know, chase that ambition without chasing it and striving for it. So let's talk about how you kind of made those first steps into that intentional practice. A big chunk of the Do Less book is about the experiments uh, that you recommend and that you have run for yourself. So how did you start experimenting with doing less and what was the first experiment you ran? Well, so the very quick intro to this is that basically after being pregnant, cutting my work hours in less than half, and then that first year of motherhood where we only had 10 hours of childcare a week and we had a very sick daughter and I was struggling with postpartum insomnia and anxiety and um, and she was not sleeping. So it was, uh, it was a hell of a year. And so we needed to get the same results though financially. Mm-hmm. And when we sat down a year after our first daughter was born, we realized we had made the same amount of revenue. And I thought- uh. What the, like, how did we do that when we were like, had way less bandwidth, way less energy? I honestly cared so much less about our business <laughs> and, um, and so much less time. And so I thought, okay, well, if we could do that by accident, we could do it on purpose. And I know we could do it more powerfully on purpose. And so I started with the 80-20 rule. And I think I had done that automatically while I was pregnant and caring for our daughter that first year without thinking about it. You know, I think that all those years of reading productivity books <laughs> had seeped in. And I automatically only tended to the 20% that got me 80% of the results. And so for each of for each of you, what what I recommend doing is just writing down on a piece of paper Take a piece of paper, you know, like this, write a line down the middle and on the left-hand side, write down the tasks that you do in your business. So recording a podcast, being on social media, writing a blog, attending networking events, you know, being in your membership, whatever. 
And on the right-hand side, write down your biggest wins to date in your business or in your career. And then draw a line from on the biggest win side to the task or tasks that actually directly resulted in that big win. And when I did this, for me, I realized it was it was actually mind-blowing. I had created this exercise for my membership origin, but then mm-hmm. I did the exercise. And it was like, oh my gosh, my two things, my two things that are my 20% are connecting with people and creating content. And what was so huge about this for me is that I had spent most of my 20s living in New York City connecting with people, going on coffee dates, going to events, meeting up with people. Like I spent tons and tons of time networking and I had felt guilty about that because I actually am an extrovert. I love being with people. It just totally lights me up. And because I enjoyed it, I automatically felt guilty. And I realized when I did this exercise that I had spent a decade investing in my business in powerful ways that have continued to pay off for now nearly almost 10 years since I left New York City. And I live in a small town in Maine. I'm not doing that level. And I'm a mother. I live on a cul-de-sac. It's like, I'm not doing that level of networking. So so I really, the first thing I did was applying, the the uh, experiment is, I think about the, vi- I call it the vital few, which I mm-hmm. was a, a phrase I got from Darren Hardy, um, which is just applying that 80-20. So I know that in a day where I have very little time because the kids are sick or it's a snow day or whatever, I need to be focusing on content creation and connecting and that everything else in my business over time, we work on outsourcing to somebody else. I love that. What are some of the wins that you contribute to those two vital activities? Well, the first one was my first book deal that, you know, Mm -hmm. that I can think of, which was, uh, uh, whatever, I don't know, which happened because of a speaking gig, which happened because I had attended an event because I, I wanted to, because I love showing up and stuff like that. And so I didn't do it for my business. It wasn't connected to ROI in any way that I thought, but it was attending that event. And then I ended up meeting one of my very, very best friends. And then she invited me to speak at one of her workshops. And during my talk, my, who's, who, the woman who became my editor happened to come to my workshop and she asked me for a book. And so it was me following my in, inspiration and my desire to show up at this event that led to that. And then I had taught the workshop. So that was creating content. So that was, that was one. Um, another one would be, um, like, you know, being on the Today Show was a big, was a big moment for my career. Um, and that one was based on creating content and connecting with people because the publicist who got me on there, I had spent a long time building a relationship just because I love her and she's fun. Um, I will say on this side note, because I, networking is so important and strategic relationships are so important. I don't, I'm not particularly strategic about that kind of thing. I really invest in relationships because I love people mm-hmm. and I don't invest in relationships because I think I'm going to get something. If I don't really enjoy being in communication with this person or spending time with them, or there's not like a click, even if maybe down the road they could get me whatever something, I just, I just don't invest there. Um, Cause I really trust that the relationships that feel good are where I need to put my energy. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny when you said that you had those guilty feelings about networking and meeting up with people. Cause that's for me, when I think of Kate Northrup, 
one of the very first things I think of is just how great you are with connecting with people. You've been awesome with connecting with me over the years, and I appreciate that greatly. But And then your network is just so rich and full of incredible people. I mean, that really, it's like one of the top things I think about when I think about you. Um, you. (laughs) And I think, isn't that so often the way that the things that are vital to the way we spend our time, maybe we do have guilty feelings about, or we think they're not as important as they are because uh, they come easily to us or because they're fun, but other people look at them and say, oh no, that's, that's the key to their success right there. That's why it's so important to be in relationships with other people who can reflect back who you are, because none of us have good perspective on ourselves. (laughs) <laughs> totally, totally agree. Um, okay, so you had mentioned when you talking when you're talking about the the vital few things that you and Mike are working on, you're trying to outsource everything else. Um, so let's talk about asking for and receiving help because those are two more experiments that you talk about in the Do Less book. Um, how has the way you receive help evolved over the last few years? Yeah, well. Um, becoming a mother has just required me to receive help in ways I never imagined possible, specifically for me more around the emotional side of things. But for a lot of people, they struggle more with receiving help logistically. I don't really, my self-worth is not really tied to my ability to logistically do things, but my self-worth has, is very tied to my ability to have it together emotionally. So Expressing that I am not okay emotionally is very hard for me versus Mm -hmm. expressing that I need help logistically. So Mm -hmm. each person is going to be different in that regard. But if you're somebody who really enjoys seeming like they have it all together, you may also find that you're more like me. (laughs) We're like, I'll happily ask somebody to pick up a pie for me on the way to dinner. But like if I'm having a hard time, you know, mothering or feeling anxious or whatever, like I won't let on about that. So that's something I'm working on myself. Um, Motherhood has been harder than I expected. I just figured since I always wanted to be a mom that it would just be easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was wrong. So um, so for me, asking for help has meant expressing that like I'm having a hard time and I need help with that. But the thing is, so often like people, as as I've done that, and this comes back to relationships, as I've done that, my as I have been willing to be vulnerable and say, like, I'm actually not okay, especially when my husband was sick um, this past October, I really, like, I we really were not okay. Um, and I was, I actually was, like, got to a point that I was so not okay that I realized, like, I wasn't going to be able to show up for my kids unless I was willing to say yes to the people who have, had reached out to say, like, if you need anything, I'm here. How many times... Do people say, like, do you, how can I support you? And you say, oh, I'm good. Thanks. But I'm all set. And, and every time we do that, it's like we push away, I think, you know, abundance and what is meant for us. Um, I can't, I'm sorry. I can't help but be a little woo. Like that is who I am. So so like, I just really think we block what's available. And then we sit in our offices and we're massively overwhelmed with our to-do list. And we think, well, how am I ever going to get all this done? Where meanwhile, several people that day or that week had said, if there's any way I can support you. And then on the flip side, we all need each other, certainly as, as small business owners. Um, but communities in general, none of us is meant to do it alone. And the more I'm willing to ask for help, whether it is, hey, 
can you watch my daughter for an hour so I can go lie down? Or, hey, like, oh, you're going to Whole Foods? Do you mind grabbing some, like, cucumbers for me? Like, it can be (laughs) whatever. The more then I become somebody in my community who is becoming the model of, oh, you can be a strong woman, you can be a strong business owner and ask for help at the same time. And then I give the people who see me permission to do that. And then I am more filled up because I've asked for help so that when they need help, I'm available. Like, so it it allows us to go both ways. It's not only about receiving and asking for help. It's also about making sure we're not running on empty so that we can be vital parts of our community and so that one week when the other person needs help, we can help. And the next week when we need help, we can receive help so that our communities become um, you know, sort of ecosystems that that can we can lean on one one another like this as opposed to always having it go one way. Because yeah, we all know people who are overtakers. So I'm yes. not saying to become that. <laughs> no, totally, totally, yeah. totally. Um, okay, so what you said about people asking, you know, what how, what can I do to help you? How can I support you? My husband literally asks me that every single morning. And every <laughs> single morning, I say exactly what you just said. Oh, I'm good. Thanks. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nothing you can do. Yeah. Which is, he knows is complete bullshit, right? Like <laughs> He knows that's not a thing. I absolutely need help. I honestly don't know what I need help with totally. from time, from uh, daily, yeah. daily, just hour by hour. I mean, let's be real. So how did you figure out how, what you needed help with in the first place? Yes. How did you start practicing figuring out what you need help with? I love this question. So I started way back in 2010 when I first started my first website. I didn't have the money to hire anybody. But Mm -hmm. I knew I would someday. (laughs) And I knew when I had that money, I would need to have something for them to do. So I started a a list in Evernote titled Assistant. And every time I was doing a task that annoyed me or that I felt like it was taking too long or that I felt like I wasn't even suited to do or whatever, like just anything that didn't light me up that wasn't my best use of my time, I put it in the Assistant list. So that then when I was able to hire my first person, I had already had a whole list of things for them. Now, this applies at home too, because mm. we just have to become more conscious of how we feel. And so when you are going throughout your day and you feel really drained or you feel irritated or you feel rushed or you feel like something is just I mean, there's good challenging, right? Like working on a book proposal is really challenging, but that's like good challenging. Mm-hmm. But versus challenging of like me trying to program the back end of my website. Not it just like I'm it's not for me, right? So start a list of things at home and things at work that are draining, irritating, make you resentful. All of those things are a sign that that is not the highest and best use of your time, and it is essentially stealing from you are stealing time from yourself. You are wasting money when you do those things. Now, obviously we don't all have the money to hire somebody right away, but I do think listing them out is very, very powerful so that you save the time of then being like, oh, I have the money. What should I, what should I have somebody to do? Um, so you can do that at home. We can do that at work, um, both, both places. And then you have a list of things. So when your husband asks you in the morning, you can get out your list. (laughs) You're like, oh, what all groceries love. (laughs) Oh, laundry. Oh, whatever. And just a side note, because I don't know that this is true in your relationship, Tara, but in a lot of relationships, 
women will ask for help in their, in their relationship. And I heard from my friend Farnoosh Tarabi, a, a shift on this perspective is so helpful, where she said, I don't ask for help. I'm asking for ownership of an area of our life. So it's not like, oh, hey, honey, today, can you help me pack the kids' lunches? No, 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 no. Like her husband, he has taken ownership of food for the family. So she doesn't have, because if we're asking for help, we still have to hold that item in our brain. We want to take that item out of our brain and have somebody else hold it. So difference between asking for help and asking for ownership. And I learned about that after I wrote my book, so it didn't go in there. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing in our businesses, right? I was just having this same conversation with Claire Pelletro oh, um, yeah. about the business side of that, which is the difference between delegating or outsourcing tasks and hiring someone to take ownership of an area of your business. And I don't think there's any way you free yourself up really, truly to do less in your business until you're able to start giving other people ownership. Um, so I love that. And I'm going to put that in my noodle and think about it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I think it's so important. The other thing I loved about what you were sharing there is that like your Evernote file about these are your assistance tasks, it starts changing the story about the work that is ours versus the work that we do that is actually someone else's so that we're at least conscious of it. And we can stop living in these stories about if I don't do it all, it doesn't get done. And we start recognizing, no, it's just sometimes I choose to do other people's work right now because I don't have the money to hire that other person. Or I, I'm just not, I'm not there yet. I don't have that person yet. But you know what you're doing. You know, you're, you have that consciousness and awareness of where the tasks actually fall in sort of the org chart, I guess, yeah. of your life. Totally. And I do think there's something really powerful about making the list for speeding up the rate at which you will be able to hire that person yeah. and that person will appear. Yeah. Amen to that. Um, guys, if you're listening here live with us and you've got questions for Kate about how she has managed to do less, what she's doing less of, what she's uh, working towards right now, whatever it might be, go ahead and use the ask a question button under the video area and I'll work those questions in uh, as soon as I can. Um, Kate, so like I said, this month, we've really been having this conversation about tracking our metrics, tracking our financials, looking at our business by the numbers. Um, and I think that one of these areas that we need to look at when we look at time is how do you actually measure what's working and what's not working with the ways that we spend our time, with the things that we do take off of our to-do list, or maybe the things that we have left on there for just way too long. So how are you personally measuring or monitoring uh, to decide if you want to change the way you're spending your time, if a to-do task really needs to stay there, or if it could get, you know, put in the trash? Yeah. So we are just, you know, we apply in our company the do less filter at all times. So the do less filter is, is there a way that I could get the same result or even perhaps better with fewer steps, less time or less energy expended? So Amen. here's an example. We st we've implemented recently a scorecard in our company based on the philosophy from the book Traction, which mm -hmm. I, full disclosure, I have not read the book. I heard about this through James Wedmore. <laughs> so um, that is the do less way. <laughs> um, but I am, I'm going to read the book. I'm in process. Um, but basically we came up with like six metrics that we were going to track each week in our company. We have a spreadsheet where they all go in and 
one team member is responsible for each. So I'm like responsible for a couple. Mike's responsible for a couple. Then we have a couple of other people who are responsible. And each week we come and we talk about those metrics. So here's something that came up out of this. Uh, Haley was tracking our social media um, impressions and insights. And what we were noticing is we used to spend, we used to have this whole process of creating designed social media graphics for various events, promotions, yada yadas. Mm-hmm. And what would happen is I would write the copy, then our designer would design it, then I would approve, then like Haley would schedule, then I would, it was like a whole thing. Multiple steps. And what we found is that they were getting over time the least amount of traction of anything versus me taking a random selfie and promoting a webinar off the cuff, just saying whatever I felt like in the moment would get huge traction. And so we just were like, oh, well, there's a great example where we're doing all these things, spending all this money because you are paying all the team members all the time, whatever, and it's not getting traction. So it's really like looking at, and I recommend actually tracking your time. So for a couple mm-hmm. of weeks, set a timer every hour and write down what you were doing in that last hour. And then you can ask, you know, was that getting a result? And you, some of the things you won't know immediately, but once you do that 80-20 rule exercise that I took you through, you'll know what your few things are. And if you're spending 90% of your day doing things that aren't in that 20%, you, you re- need to reorganize. You need to reorganize. And it's the 20% that gets the time in your calendar first, and then everything else has to work in around that. So for me, I block out from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. for content creation most of the time. Now, I've been in a season of book promotion, so that time has ended up with interviews in it, but that makes sense because we're in a mm-hmm. season of book promotion where connecting with people has become a greater priority than content creation. But I'll be shifting gears over the summer, and I know for me, 8 to 12 during the day are my is my best window. After that, I lose focus. I blah, 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 blah. I'm not as articulate, all of those things. And so I pay myself first with my time by tracking what hours of the day am I at my best, and then I line up the hours of the day that I'm at my best with the tasks that are the highest and best use of my time. Awesome. Can I would I would love if you don't mind sharing with us to know what the other metrics are that you're tracking in yeah. your scorecard. So right now we are tracking um, list growth, so new subscribers, unsubscribes, open rates, click through rates, um, podcast downloads, podcast reviews. Because uh, we have a podcast called The Kate and Mike Show. Um, uh, new members uh, for Origin, my membership, canceled members. Um, we have a closed membership like like you. So mm-hmm. um, there aren't new members every week. But <laughs> but yeah. Um, and then also Instagram. Instagram is our, is our focus platform. So Instagram, um, new followers. And then also which posts got the most... Um, impressions and which post got the most uh, comments and same with stories, which story got the most impressions and then which stories got the most actions. So the swipe ups. So like now we know because we've been doing this for uh, several weeks. Now we know my audience just loves quotes. So like when in doubt, just post a quote. They just freaking love it. <laughs> and really? so- who knew? That's fascinating. I would have not guessed that, but now you know. They love it. Now we know. So like, you know, over time- 
right? Like I've heard other Instagram experts talk about how well the photos of themselves do or whatever. And I'm, you know, maybe my kids' photos, they do pretty well, but like, I'm not going to use my kids for my social media analytics. So that's just me. So quotes. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. Um, We do have a couple of questions uh, coming in from other folks, and I would love to work both of these in now, I think. Uh, Carly's question is, what if you're just starting out? Does doing less still apply? Great question. Yes. So in a different way, though, I will, you know, full, obviously it's different. You know, I've been in business almost, you know, yeah, almost 10 years um, in the particular iteration that we're in. Um, And so, yes, over time you get more insight. But here's my recommendation, because the number one question I get around the 80-20 is, well, I'm just starting, so I don't have any big business wins to be able to track to know Like, Mm -hmm. how would I know what my 20% is? Because I don't have the historical data. So my recommendation is set yourself up quarterly so that at the end of each quarter, you are writing out, okay, what were my biggest wins this quarter? And what were the tasks that led to those biggest wins this quarter? I also think as a new business person, my biggest advice, and if I could go back and tell myself this 10 years ago, I wish I would have listened, which is that Focus on one thing until you get traction with it before you start the next thing. I am the queen of shiny object syndrome, and I've really only cut that out since having kids. And our business has grown tremendously. I mean, we had the goal to hit seven figures for years, and it wasn't until I had children that we hit seven figures because I had less time. And because I couldn't just like screw around starting everything I thought of. And when we screw around and start every idea that we think of, especially when you're new, you have so many ideas, so many possibilities. What happens is your new idea cannibalizes on the idea you already started. And then you get half a bunch of half-baked ideas, no results, no traction. And you wonder why you're not getting traction, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think back to 10 years ago when we were just, you and I both were just starting out, there was so much less that we were told we had to yes. do too, Thank right? God. And I think that people think that people like you and I got to where we are now because we've been doing all the things for the last 10 years and we have not been. We were doing very, very little at the beginning because nobody knew any better. I right? was just blogging. I was only Same. blogging because that was the only thing I knew about. I was blogging yep. and doing Twitter. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what we did. That's and we built so much from that. Yes. So pick a platform. I love Jada Selner, um, to, mm-hmm. who created Simple Green Smoothie. She's got her pick a person, pick a promotion strategy, pick a platform, pick a product, and pick a plan. It's her five Perfect. P system. I bet if you Google it, it's on her podcast. I don't really know, but it's just like genius for focusing and then just re repeat over and over again until you get traction. Perfect. I love that. Uh, Victoria asks, uh, with the idea of doing less, what would you say is the average amount of time you work per day? Do you batch your work tasks? She says, I struggle with feeling the urge to work all day, every day and doing all of the things, which is exhausting. Totally. So the the data shows, interestingly, that I did a lot of research for do less and the data shows that Even the top, top performers, athletes, artists, uh, musicians, novelists can only focus on things that move the needle in their business for about four hours a day. Hmm. So the truth is, if you're working 40 hours or even, you know, 50 hours a week, there's a lot of time that you're just sitting at your computer and not actually doing anything. So there's this idea, by the way, the 40-hour work week was created during the Industrial Revolution having to do with how machinery works. 
not how human beings work. And it is erroneous and arbitrary at this point because most of us are not operating machinery. Well, computers, but very different. So <laughs> very different. So I recommend noticing for yourself how is your energy? Each of us are cyclical throughout the day and we're also cyclical throughout the month. So notice where is your energy the most focused in your day and in your month and then schedule the things that require the most focus during those times. I mean, that seems really simple, but it really, really works. So for me, writing, if I'm shooting videos for our Origin membership, um, creating handouts, those things, they have to be done before 12. Otherwise, I end up spending like three times as long as on them and I have to go back and it's frustrating. And at the end of the day, I feel kind of crappy versus mm -hmm. if I get it done in the morning, I feel amazing. So um, I would recommend really looking at where do you feel your best in the day and then batching the content. Also, just noticing that um, context switching wastes a lot of time and energy, which is why batching obviously makes so much sense. So I, I'm I'm moving towards being even better at this, but like if I I uh, you know have a bunch of interviews, I know that it's better to just get them all done in a day because then I'm not trying to write a blog and then go back to the interview and da, da, da. it's like messy. Um, and you know hire a videographer for the one day, get it, get all the videos done if possible. Now, of course, that's the goal, and we do our best. Yeah, totally agree. That is basically how I run things as well. So, what does that work out to then? Your like oh, yeah, even my hours per week. Um, okay, so my kids are in some kind of childcare like eight hours a day. And, okay. and then I probably end up having at least like two to three appointments that are unbusiness related during the week that at least take, you know, an hour and a half if you consider driving there and whatever. Uh, plus I exercise and shower while they're gone. Plus I'm eating and taking breaks. So I think that probably I work closer to like six hours a day. Um I would say like six hours a day. Um, I'm considering for the fall dropping a day of childcare and cutting down to a four hour, four day work week um, and just experimenting with that because with my whole theory that when we have a smaller plate, we just get better with our time. Um, it's not really a theory. I've proven it. Um, so, and plus my kids are only little ones, you know? Yeah. Right. I love that. So. Totally. I mean, I'll report in. I'll let you know. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope you keep us posted yeah. on that. I would love to know how that goes if you decide to do it. Um, well, looking at the time, I think it's probably about time we start wrapping up. So I would love to know what's next for you or what are you like super excited about right now? You know, what's so funny. So for years and years, I avoided I like anytime anyone would talk, would uh, uh, describe me as a coach or like talk about one-on-one -on -one anything. I, ugh, I was like, nope, I'm a one-to-many girl. Like I'm not into it at all. Um, and I loved the sort of like mass of people with like less, you know, direct connection. And mm -hmm. so, but uh, ever since December, I've really pivoted that and we started an origin incubator program. It's just been eight women and I've gone really deep with them for the last year. And it's turned out, you know, when we talk about doing less, right, I am working with fewer people. Now, obviously, there's my membership and we have like about 800 women in there. But this group has been so amazing. And so I'm, I'm looking at like how can I go deep in that way with a f smaller group of people because it turns out the thing I was avoiding for so many years is actually the favorite part of my business right now. So that's what I'm excited about. It's always, I love surprising myself. 
Yeah, I <laughs> love hearing that too. I think it, one, it's really refreshing to hear that. And two, I can see your face light up. Sorry, podcast listeners, you can't see Kate's face. Um, <laughs> but I can see your face light up. Um, and that's just such an incredible thing to see. So I'm very, very excited for you for that as Thank well. Um, where can we learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so you can go to katenorthup.com. Um, I have a free, like, what do I call it? Like a ritual for a, a practice for saving two hours a day on average. So if you do this 11-minute practice at the beginning of the week, it'll save you on average two hours a day. So if you head over to there, just katenorthup.com, you'll see that. Um, you can come listen to the Kate and Mike show that I do with my husband. Um, and Instagram is my place that I hang out the most on social media at Kate Northrup. Fantastic. Kate Northrup, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for sharing the behind the scenes of how you do less and giving us some really um, awesome exercises and, and just new ways of thinking that we can approach this idea of doing less in our own businesses as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. That's it for this special live episode of What Works. If you're hungry for more real talk about growing and running your small business without the hype or gimmicks, join us inside the What Works Network. Next month, we're turning our attention to building an audience and cultivating the relationships that can move our businesses forward. We're even hosting an all-day virtual conference on the topic on Thursday, June 13th, featuring Amy Walsh, Dr. Michelle Mazur, Alethea Fitzpatrick, and Dana Kay. We'll deep dive into topics like representing your brand visually, creating a rallying cry for your business, building an inclusive audience, and nurturing a magnetic brand. We'll be opening membership to the What Works Network soon, so go to explore whatworks.com slash network to get all the details and sign up to be notified when you can join us. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network. Special thanks to our producer, Sean McMullen, our editor, Marty Seafelt, and our community advocate hanging out with you in the chat, Shannon Paris. Find over 200 more candid conversations about small business at explorewhatworks.com.